From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest in this episode is the amazing Gretchen Rubin, who is a best-selling author of several books on human nature. Her first bestsellers, The Happiness Project and Happier at Home, both sparked powerful conversations about the human search for happiness. She has an enormous following in print and online. On her popular daily blog, GretchenRubin.com, she reports on her adventures in pursuit of smart habits and happiness. She also has a great podcast. It's called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. She started her career in law and was clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor when she realized she wanted to be a writer. Her latest book is The Four Tendencies, the indispensable personality profiles that reveal how to make your life better and other people's lives better, too. And in our conversation, Gretchen and I talk about her very practical, simple personality framework, how people respond to both inner and outer expectations, and the importance of self-reflection in coming to know yourself, one of my favorite topics. We explore the four types, upholder, questioner, obliger, and rebel. And we get into some specific ways to change habits and interactions with others in your family, at work, and in other relationships so you can be your best self and help others to thrive as well. The goal, ever-deepening self-knowledge and acceptance of how others are different from you in the ways they see the world and respond to expectations. So now, get set to listen, learn, and be inspired by Gretchen Rubin, a true student of human nature. Gretchen Rubin, welcome to Work and Life. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Well, it's it's great to have you here. So let me ask, before we get into what these four tendencies are and, are and how we can discover them and, and use them, what's been the most surprising thing you've learned about yourself in your own ro- remarkable uh, journey of self-discovery? Well, I think it's just this completely obvious conclusion. I mean, it should be obvious, but... People don't see the world the way I see the world, you know, and that I really had been led into, in many, many ways, of just thinking, well, this is what works for me, or this is how I see the world, and so I just assumed that other people more or less saw things the way I did, or if there was something that, like, everybody else agreed on, that there must be, like, what was wrong with me, or, you know, why could, why sh- I should be able to do something, you know, now I've learned whenever somebody's telling me you should be able to do this, or I tell myself you should be able to do this, mm-hmm. like every warning bell goes off because I'm like, does it really matter what you should be able to do? The question is, what works for you? Um, and so I was surprised many, many times. Like one thing, uh, abstainers and moderators, one thing that really surprised me was that for facing strong temptation, for some people it's easier to have none. 
For some people, it's easier to have a little bit. I just assumed that moderation was better. Everybody should be able to be moderate. Why couldn't I just have one cookie? Why couldn't I never have half a dish of ice cream? It's too hard for me. It's easier for me to have none. And a lot of people are like me. There's no right way or wrong way. But I was surprised because I was like, I thought you should be able to just be moderate. No, it's too hard to be moderate if you're an abstainer. So it's it's really discovering those things about yourself that help you to, well, find a sense of contentment in being who you are. I mean, that is indeed the great quest. So um, tell us about why knowing these tendencies, well, what are they and, and why it's so important for anyone really to to take the time to think about those tendencies and to try to become uh, facile with them and, and really comfortable with them. So the four tendencies um, are upholder, questioner, obliger, and rebel. These are what I say are the four tendencies, and I argue that everybody does fit within a core tendency, though they may lean one way or another towards a different tendency. And it has to do with how you respond to an expectation. So we all face outer expectations, which are things like a work deadline, and then we have inner expectations, which is like our own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. Mm-hmm. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. That's they, like you and me, right, Gretchen? Are, are you an upholder? Duh. Okay. Well, you know what? There aren't many of us. No. It's a small group, right? We, that was a huge revelation to me, and I was like, you know what? Things come easily to upholders that don't come as easily to other people. Hmm. That was a very Say more. Big, that was a very big um, revelation to me. What, what was surprising about that? Well, first describe what, a, what an upholder is, and, and, then, yeah. and, then, and then please elaborate on why that was a surprising uh, finding Well, let me you. do the whole framework okay. so people can kind of right. orient themselves, and then I'll talk about being an upholder. Please. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline, they keep the nearest resolution without much fuss. They want to know what's expected of them from others, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then questioners. Questioners question all expectations. So they respond to inner expectations. If something meets their standard for making sense, they will, res- they will do it. If it doesn't meet their standard, they will resist. So they typically hate anything arbitrary or inefficient or irrational. They always want to know why. Mm-hmm. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my insight into this tendency, which, yeah. by the way, is the largest tendency, the most number really? of people fit into this tendency. Is that because that's the, the, those are the people who are most likely to complete the quiz? Oh, no, no, no. I did a, I did a representative sample that <laughs> took out that bias. Good. Um, so a friend of mine said to me, well, you know, the thing that's weird is I know I would be happier if I exercise. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team, and I, never, and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, this set me into a spiral of reflection, but right. what I know now is that she's an obliger. So when she had a team and a coach expecting her, mm-hmm. she had no trouble doing it. But when she was just trying to go running on her own, it was a struggle. The great Atlantic Grill revelation. Yes, the Atlantic Grill revelation. That took place at the restaurant, the Atlantic Grill, where I have had significant conversations in my own life. Another story we'll talk about some oh my other God, time. that's hilarious. It's, it's kind of <laughs> but a, it's, in New York it's City. Not, it's not a likely setting for an epiphany, but well, and you and I both had one. You started the book with that delightful uh, yeah. anecdote. So, the, so we've got upholders, we've got questioners, we've got obligers, and then... That's David so, Bowie's yes. Rebel Rebel. Yeah, no good. You're good at carrying a tune. Um, so rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way. In-
if you ask or tell them to do something, they are very likely to resist. Mm -hmm. Typically, they don't even want to tell themselves what to do. Like, they don't want to tell themselves to sign up for a class at 10 a.m. on Saturday because they're like, I don't know what I'm going to want to do at 10 a.m. on Saturday. I don't want to bind myself that way. Hmm. So these are upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. So as I said, obliger is the largest tendency. It's the one the most number of people fit into. You either are an obliger or you have many obligers in your life. They're the rock of the world. Next, questioners, that's also a very large tendency. Rebel is the smallest tendency. It's a conspicuous tendency, but it's very small. And only slightly larger is your tendency and my tendency, upholder. Hmm. Not very many people are upholders. Now, how do, you, how do you explain that? This is just how it appears in the world. You know, it's sort of like mm-hmm. how things, you know, probably because of evolutionary adaptation or, you know, all that. Um, and we all, mm-hmm. have compl- we all have strengths and weaknesses. Every tendency has strengths mm-hmm. and every, every tendency has limitations and weaknesses. Every tendency includes people who are highly successful and also people who are big losers. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, it's just sort of like there's no one better tendency. But when you know your te- back to your original question, when you know yes. your tendency, you can manage yourself better because you can see like, oh, as an obliger, what I need is outer accountability. That's going to allow me to meet my inner expectation. Mm-hmm. Or you can manage other people better, which is like, well, you're a rebel. So for me telling you, you have to do this. Um, well, no, I don't have to do anything because you're not the boss of me and you can't make me. Mm -hmm. So I have to talk to you in a way that's going to resonate with your rebel perspective, and then we're going to be able to deal with each other much more effectively because I'm not igniting that spirit of resistance. Igniting that spirit of resistance, what's, what's the counter to that? What is the alternative to telling a rebel what to do? How does one engage the rebel? Now, for all those parents out there who have teenagers who tend to be rebellious in that stage of life. You know, interestingly, no. Oh. If you if you talk to a parent who's truly the parent of a rebel child, they will say, absolutely, you can tell a rebel from a non-rebel. Um, it, it's it's and and you know you can't look at somebody from the outside and know their tendency. You have to know their thinking. So like somebody mm-hmm. said to me, oh, as a teenager, everybody would have said I was a rebel, but I was actually doing everything my friends expected me to do. <laughs> so it's actually look, you know, it's like oh, I got tattoos and wore a leather jacket and smoked. Because that's what my friends told me I had to do. You know, so it's hard, it can be hard to tell. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with a rebel? This is something that comes up all the time. I'm and this sure. is true for rebels themselves who are trying to manage themselves mm-hmm. and for people dealing with rebels. So one is a core value of rebels is identity. They always want to project their authentic self into the world. So you remind them, what kind of person do you want to be? This is who you are. You always want to remind them, what do you want? What do you choose? You can do anything you want. They can do anything they choose to do. Do you want to be a respected leader? Do you want to be a considerate friend? Because when you show up late every th- to, to every meeting with me, it makes me feel like mm-hmm. your time is more important than my time and that you don't, you don't feel like I'm worthy of your respect. That's mm-hmm. how you're making me feel. Is that the kind of person you want to be? So it's, it's asking the question about what kind of identity they want to display and, and right. be known for. And, the other and that works well. Related, Rebels tend to respond to that with uh, engagement in the conversation about what their behavior might mean and think, think, think again about it. Well, so another way to think about it, like to your point, is information, consequences, choice. You give the rebel the information that they need. You tell them the consequences of their action or, or their inaction, mm-hmm. and then you let them choose how to behave. Mm-hmm. So you could say something like, you know, when you don't come to the meetings, everybody just talks about what's going on without you. And then when they're dividing up the work, everybody takes the interesting work themselves, and you're left with the dregs because you're not there to, like, pipe up and say what you want. So, you know, the staff meetings are every Wednesday at 10 a.m. 
information, consequences, choice. Here's the information. Here's the consequences. It's up to you. No nagging, no reminding, because that ignites the spirit of resistance. Mm. And you must allow negative consequences to fall on a rebel. You can't rescue. You can't protect. This can be very, very painful. Hmm. Sometimes, like, if it's a spouse, those negative consequences can fall into you, too. That's a real problem. Um, hmm. Sometimes you don't want to let a child experience negative consequences, or, you know, um, but that's, that's how it works. And rebel after rebel has said to me, I pay my bills because I've learned the hard way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work for me to let those things. So what's the upside of... of uh having that rebel tendency. Tremendous upside. Well, they can, they're really good at thinking outside the box. They're very good at being spontaneous. They're good. At, they're good. At, they, they're not affected by convention in the same way. And what they really have to teach everyone as an upholder. So upholder and rebel, they're like the opposite of each other because one mm-hmm. readily meets outer and inner expectation and one resists outer and inner expectation. So they're opposites. What I've learned from the rebels is we are more free than we think. Hmm. we're way more free than we think. That's so interesting. And there's a lot of things you think you have to do. You don't really have to do them. You know, and uh, if you just refused, no one could make you. So that's a lesson that, that upholders could benefit from hearing more in their, in their lives and in their work. Well, I think actually, funnily enough, the, it's the obligers are the ones that benefit from that more because for upholders... Upholders have this structure of inner expectations, which can act as a counterbalance to outer expectations. So let's say you've got a really, really demanding boss. Well, as an upholder, it's easier for me to say, you know what, I can't work on the weekend because I need that time for myself, so I'm just going to say no. Because that time is my time. That's not part of the work week. So, you know, we're just going to have to make that work. Because I've got that inner expectation. I need, I need time to recover. I need time to recharge my battery. I need time for my family and my mm-hmm. own things. So I can't do that for you. For obligers, that's harder to do. Sure. So they need to They're remind themselves. Yeah. I'm sorry. They need to remind themselves. But they can <clears throat> say no. And, and mm-hmm. it's interesting. Uh, there's a deep affinity between rebels and obligers. Hmm. Um, whenever you see a rebel who's paired up, either in romance or work, usually they're paired with an obliger. Um, and I think there's something for both sides there. Meaning? Meaning the rebel... Basically, the rebel, like questioners and upholders, don't typically partner up well with rebels because they don't like that rebel spirit and they don't respect it often. Um, they find it very hard to work with that. Um, but obligers are kind of intrigued by this willingness to buck expectations and mm-hmm. it makes them feel freer. Um, because it's so counter to the way that they typically uh, inhabit the world. Let's talk a little bit more about upholders since we both are Gretchen. What what are some of the signal characteristics of upholders that are useful for that that elite group of us to know? Well, one of the tells, uh, you know, and nothing is universal. So I'm speaking in broad in broad strokes. Um, but if you're if people call you rigid, that's often a sign that you're an upholder because upholders very often will like you know they got their things that they want to do. They want to meet this outer expectation. They want to meet this inner expectation. They're going to do that, and they and they typically are not spontaneous. They don't value spontaneity. They like planning things out. They typically like things like to do lists. They're good at setting priorities. They're good at meeting deadlines. They don't need a lot of supervision. They don't need a lot of accountability. If you say, "Hey, do this," uh, you know, an upholder can pretty much just mm-hmm. do it. They don't need that sense of like, "Ooh, you're looking over my shoulder. You're checking on me," which is for an obliger that sense of outer accountability. So that is, must have helped you a lot important. in law school, I'm imagining. 
Hmm? I'm sure that tendency must have helped you a lot in law school. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and even more when I was switching from law to writing, a lot of times ah. people say, how did you switch from law to writing? Yeah. How did you get yourself to write a sample chapter and query agents? And like, how did you get yourself to do it? And I'm mm-hmm. like, I just decided to do it. Mm-hmm. For an upholder, that kind, of ex- that kind of execution is not difficult. However, upholders can sometimes seem cold to others. This is something that I hmm. did not really understand very well until I wrote the Four Tendencies. Because somebody's like... Yeah, we've got company coming this week, but, you know, I need to go on my run because I'm training for the marathon, so I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to go for my run. And to a questioner in a blight or a rebel, they might be like, that's crazy. Like, we have guests. Mm. And then the upholder's like, yeah. Or like, oh, you want me to proofread your report because it's due tomorrow, but, you know, my report's due tomorrow, too. So I can't really help you out because i got to do my own. So what, what's the key to dealing effectively in a romantic relationship or work relationship with an upholder? It's really to understand that they put a very high value on meeting outer and inner expectations, and they do put a very high value on follow-through. And this can be a very great strength, um, but uh, sometimes people don't want that, or they want you to be able to turn it on and off. So, for instance, my daughter, who's now 12, is in a folder, and... Like, she absolutely positively has to get to school on time. And we, we, we walk to school, and we have plenty of, you know, built-in buffer. And, like, you walk to school, you know how long it's going to take. But mm-hmm. if we're going to be late, like, she is frantic. Like, she wants to be on time. And just saying, like, oh, it doesn't matter if every once in a while you're 10 minutes late. She's like, no, I want to be on time. So if you're saying to your upholder child, oh, you don't have to practice guitar tonight because we're going over to your grandparents' house, and your, your guitar teacher will be fine with it, they'll be like, no, 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 I have to practice guitar, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so they can they can't always with all the tendencies it's very we can't really turn them on and off very easily. Mm-hmm. They're hardwired. Do you theorize? I do. And what gives you that uh, that that confidence that uh, that indeed these are sort of inborn tendencies that are perhaps not so malleable? Well, partly it's because I really do believe in the genetic roots of personality, and so I think that you know we pretty much you know you get what you get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> coming out. Um, and then also, you know, um, a lot of times when people say, oh, I'm an obliger because of X, Y, Z, I'm like, yeah, but that would be the same justification that you're an upholder, a questioner, a rebel. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's always in hindsight. Um, and especially the more extreme tendencies, rebel and upholder, like apparent very early, not always, you can't always tell what a child is because they're not autonomous mm-hmm. in the way that adults are. But often it's very clear. For instance, rebels will spontaneously, I've never even specifically asked this, but I've heard from many rebels telling me about the, the moment in childhood when they were little, little kids, like when they realized she's telling me to put my socks on, but she can't make me. Nobody can make me. And like the epiphany of like, no, I am the boss of me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they really do go way back. So Knowing these tendencies, um, if you could say more about how this helps, uh, you know, we we haven't heard much about the questioner. If you could say more about the questioner yeah. and and how knowing that tendency, for example, helps one to, to 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 live a happier life. So the thing about questioners is, for them, it's really about justification. You know, they're they're they they really go through the world being like, well, why should I? And so this can be a really strong, powerful thing, and it really helps all of us because it's like, well, why are we doing this anyway? Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes questioners drain and overwhelm people with their questions. Mm. Um, sometimes, you know, and it's Maybe I'm a questioner then. Hmm? Maybe I'm a questioner then. Hmm. 
Take and, the quiz. There's a quiz at Hackathon.com. No, I did. I did. I did, and I got a polder, so I'm assuming. Ah. But go ahead. To, to say more about the, the question, and, and so the annoying tendency to ask lots of questions can grate on people. Can grate on people, can overwhelm them. It can make them seem like bottlenecks or like they're stubborn. Uh, it can sometimes get them. It can certainly get them in trouble at school. Like mm. I'm not going to do this homework because it's it's pointless. I don't understand why I should have to memorize the multiplication tables if I can just use a calculator. If somebody doesn't explain to that child why they need to do it, mm-hmm. they just may not do it. So that can get them into trouble. So at work, it can get them into trouble because some workplaces really value the question or frame frame of mind. They sure. drive for efficiency, the need for justification. You know, they might really reward it. Others, it's like, you're not a team player, you're not respecting my authority, you know, you're just wasting everybody's time with questions that have already been asked and answered. Mm-hmm. Um, it can make a boss feel um, defensive and undermined. And so, sure. you know, uh, skillful questioners learn how to ask questions in ways that don't make people uh, defensive and don't drain others. And then if you're around a questioner, you can, you can just understand, like, they just need more answers. So, for instance, if mm-hmm. you're a manager and you had a mixed team, which you almost certainly would, right. you could say, okay, you know what? Um, corporate has decided that we're going to start using this new software. Let me give you a presentation about why we're doing this. And then you're done, and then you can say, so if you've heard enough about why we've decided to go with this new software, and you, you feel like your questions have been answered, feel free to go back to your desk. If you have further questions that you would like to pose to, to understand better why we made this decision, Please stay, and I'm happy to take your questions and, until you understand. Mm-hmm. So then people don't have to listen to it, but the questioners get their questions answered. So that's a wise person who's making that choice, Gretchen. And most managers probably don't have the keenness of that kind of sensitivity uh, to account for those variations. Uh, at least that's been my experience. Um, how do you help people to grasp, as managers, as parents, uh, how to deal effectively with the different kinds of tendencies that people have about responding to expectations. Well, the funny thing is, once you know about these tendencies, they start really becoming very obvious. Like, you, I, I think by the time people have finished the book or even like listened to a conversation about it, they start being like, "Yeah, that's a rebel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an obliger. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know." And then, and then you start seeing how they're responding. Like, gosh. You're just asking question after question. I'm like, ooh, okay, well, maybe not everybody has to listen to this conversation. Or, or mm-hmm. like with obligers, the key thing for obligers yes. is if, they need, if they're having trouble meeting an inner expectation, which by definition they are, that is the definition of, a, of an obliger, mm-hmm. what they need is outer accountability. That always works. If you have outer accountability, you can meet that inner expectation. So my friend on the track team yeah signed up for a class or worked out with a trainer or worked out with a friend who was annoyed if she didn't come or took her dog for a run who would have been so disappointed if she didn't get her daily run or signed up for a 5K where she's raising money for an organization whose work she really values that's going to have less money if she doesn't finish. There's a million ways to build an outer accountability once you realize that that is the missing piece. But sometimes the other tendencies don't understand the crucial role that accountability can play and they don't feel like it's appropriate or they don't want the work of providing accountability. And I see this mm-hmm. a lot as a writer because you have a writer who does great work at a magazine and a newspaper where they have constant deadlines, editors, you know, colleagues. Then they go on book leave. They have this far distant deadline. And then they're like, oh, I have writer's block. I can't write. And the, or they do something like go to their agent and say, please give me some deadlines. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend where the agent so well-meaning, said, oh, no, take your time. It's mm-hmm. going to be amazing. Like, uh, just whenever not going to work. 
It's like, no. So if somebody's asking you for accountability, give it to them. So one of the things that I would imagine that I have experienced with obligers uh, that I can now see in retrospect is a kind of frustration that they're not uh, being clear enough about what it is that they want to hold themselves accountable for. How do you help those obli- that aspect of obligingness? So here's the thing. Obligers are not successful at holding themselves accountable for something. There needs to be a, a, a system of outer accountability. But they don't even know what it is that they want to pursue, like the New Year's resolution idea. That, ah. it's, it's getting, my experience is not even uh, that obligers can be um, inhibited in even articulating what it is that is important to them that they want to pursue for themselves. Well, that is super important. That is a very, very crucial point because the fact about inner expectations is they must be articulated. Right. This is true for upholders, questioners, rebels, obligers, everybody. You have to hear that inner voice. Mm-hmm. That inner, no matter what your tendency is, if you do not hear the inner voice, it's always going to get drowned out by the outer voice. Because right. the outer voice, that is not going to be muted. Of course. Yeah. The, um, the so world really will not do, go away. Yeah. But what happens with obligers and maybe what you're seeing is that they can be- become very frustrated and dejected and kind of um, almost hopeless because they have so often tried to make promises to themselves and then let themselves hmm. down. And that's a very bad feeling. Yeah. So often one tip-off of an obliger is if I say, how do you feel about New Year's resolutions? Obligers will often answer, I don't make New Year's resolutions anymore because I've broken them so often, or I mm. never keep them. And so I think sometimes there's just kind of this hopelessness. And so when I talk to bladers and I'm like, hey, this is a big tendency. There's nothing wrong with you. It's not that you're lazy. It's not that you lack willpower. You're like a lot of people. You need outer accountability. Mm-hmm. Plug in the outer accountability, and you will be able to execute just like you do in other parts of your life mm-hmm. so well. Mm-hmm. It can't be that you're lazy. It can't be that you don't have willpower. Because look at how you come through for these other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I think then maybe they feel more possibility and then maybe it would be easier for them to acknowledge the things that they want. Excellent analysis. And it's a note we're going to have to bring it home to here because we are uh, unfortunately out of time, Gretchen. Uh, before we go, what's what's the, the most important thing you want to leave our listeners with in terms of what they need to know to use these tendencies to create a greater sense of harmony uh, among the different parts of their lives and, and in the different parts of their lives, their work, home, community, and in their private lives. It's just this idea that there's no better tendency, there's no best tendency, there's no bad tendency. Each one can help you become happier, healthier, more productive, more creative, or help other people to become happier, healthier, more productive, more creative. It's just a question of like figuring out how to set up the conditions, the situations, the environments that are going to help you thrive and help other people to thrive. Because when you see how people are coming from different places, you can, you can figure out a way that it can help everyone to thrive. Gretchen, thank you so much for joining me on the show tonight. How can listeners find out more about the great work that you're doing, and especially about this new book? Uh, my site, uh, GretchenRubin.com, has all kinds of information about the four tendencies and everything I do. On my podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, I, we, my sister, my co-host, and I talk about the four tendencies a lot and how to be happier. Um, I have a better app, which is all about the four tendencies, um, and that's mm-hmm. just search better Gretchen Rubin in the app store, and that's for people who want to form accountability groups or just talk about the four tendencies. Um, and I'm all over Instagram and Twitter and Facebook as Gretchen Rubin, and I love to hear from listeners and readers and viewers, so I hope people get in touch if they have any questions or insights. 
All right. Thank you for that. And congratulations on your first child going off to college. I saw that. Thank you. Oh, man, I remember when that happened uh, to me 11 years ago, and it's it's a powerful uh, change in life. Uh, congratulations on that, and, and especially on this uh, great work that you've been doing, Gretchen Rubin. Really appreciate your being here. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gretchen Rubin and that it stimulated some new ideas about how you respond to others' expectations and the expectations you have of yourself, knowing these expectations, is not easy. It may seem obvious, but it's, it's hard to first accept what it is that you really want for yourself and to take in the perspective of others around you. This is an essential aspect of my total leadership approach, learning first to see and then really take in, in a way that is true for the people around you, how they see you. And of course, you get there through conversation, through dialogue, through inquiry, through genuine curiosity and interest in how other people see you. Knowing how you tend to react to expectations, which is what Gretchen Rubin's framework is all about, can help you become even more capable in navigating the social landscapes that you travel every single day. So are you an upholder, questioner, obliger, or rebel? And how can knowing your tendency and the tendencies of of the people around you, how can that be helpful to you? So here is my challenge, an invitation for you. Find out your tendency by taking the simple quiz that you can get online. Just search for Gretchen Rubin's Four Tendencies. And then once you know your result, come up with one simple idea for how you can accept something about yourself that you've been fighting against and trying to alter but to no avail. What do you discover when seeking to do that because, you know, any change that you want to make in the world as a leader in your world, someone capable of mobilizing other people toward a goal that matters, any such effort starts, after all, with the most difficult thing in the world to change, and that is you. Well, I'd love to hear from you. If you take up this challenge or about anything else that's on your mind as you're listening to our podcast, you can contact me directly at Stu Friedman. That's on Twitter. Or you can write to me. Email is friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. 
And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. Oh, 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 oh.